For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong and high or middle or low, realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born. May all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours. Let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, free from sense appetites, one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to... Our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. 
our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? So I want to talk tonight about compassion. So this is a, a small group, so we can have some discussion. But I want to uh, talk first about, um, well, this is from a talk that my old friend Roshi Joan Halifax from the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe gave uh, September 22nd to a uh, Soto Zen Buddhist Association teachers conference. So um, so she's talking about compassion. And actually, the first part of this is about, I, I called the talk practical compassion, but the first part of this is about problems in compassion. So I'm, I'm, I just want to read from, you know, kind of look from my notes, but then talk about this. Uh, she talked first about um, pathological compassion or pathological altruism. So uh, the first part of this is, again, dangers of compassion. So pathological altruism, one side of that could be uh, disempowering those to whom we are compassionate. Uh, you know, like we are, we have all the, all the good stuff to give to, somebody else. So uh, this is a, a naturally a problem for people in uh, helping uh, professions or help doing helping work to, to feel better than those we help. Um, the other side of that, or and one other side of that is um, the pathological altruism that damages oneself. This comes from overwork uh, and neglecting one's own well-being. So we have to take, take care of ourselves as well as taking care of others. Um, so this is times when, at, at times, this is a, a problem I have of working too, working too much, not, and I'm working at now at uh, pacing myself and taking time to, to take care of myself. This is, um, you know, the dynamics of, what is real compassion? Um, so uh, Roshi Joan also talked about empathic distress, uh, 
being empathic with people who are suffering and then becoming distressed oneself. So there's a kind of skill in having one's own balance when one tries to be helpful, when one works that compassion, when one expresses compassion. So one way to talk about this is a kind of wholeness or integrity and the opposite of that. So uh, uh, Joan laid out, laid out a, a landscape of moral suffering. Um, so um, how to um, not be caught by moral injury. So uh, we've, we may feel in the face of distress some responsibility, but moral injury comes when we're well, in various various ways, unable to act on some remedy when we don't know what to do, when we feel like there should be some, even when we feel like we know what the remedy is and we just don't know how to act. Another aspect of this moral injury could be um, um, witnessing and participating in some moral transgression or enabling some moral transgression. So uh, these are all ways in which we can get caught, even when we're trying to be compassionate. Uh, Another one, moral outrage. We can get caught up in anger and disgust and uh, with all of the moral outrages in the world. So um, how do we find appropriate balanced action as opposed to um, being self-righteous, feeling when we feel anger or outrage or distress, it's really easy to become self-righteous. Oh, look at, the, look at that happening over there and, and, and feel like we are better than that. So that self-righteousness, the thinking we know the answers, it's a big problem. Um, again, I'm going through some of the obstacles to compassion, the practical obstacles. Um, and another one is moral apathy. So in the face of, of distress and suffering, one, one thing that happens is we can sort of check. We can get caught up. Caring, we can feel like there's nothing to do, or uh, I don't know what to do, or uh, just moral disengagement, not um, just feeling there's, you know, there's nothing to do. We're not uh, not caring. Um, can you hear me? Okay, I'm getting a signal that my internet is unstable. Let's see. Um, so. Um, All of these moral injuries um, can leave a kind of uh, a residue uh, of unprocessed moral suffering. How do we pay attention to all of this? How do we see when we get caught up in some of these obstacles? Um, So one uh, way to see this is in terms of respect as opposed to disrespect. So how do we respect ourselves? How do we respect 
the situation, how to respect the other people who are suffering uh, without, you know, again, making oneself better than uh, being self-righteous. Um, uh, Joan talked about how uh, in the COVID crisis, she said 15 to 20 percent of nurses have left their job or leave their jobs maybe even before COVID, but certainly now. And a lot of that, one cause of that is what she called horizontal disrespect, which is disrespect of our peers, feeling like um, we're not appreciated. So there are various kinds of um, issues there. Overwork is one that I mentioned. Sometimes a toxic workplace where there's a, a, a not support, where there's a feeling of and, and uh, uh, not a feeling of, of being in it together and cooperation. Or the, another one is lack of, uh, of efficacy, lack not being able to be helpful. So that's another source of burnout. That's when uh, uh, nurses, for example, feel like they're not, there's nothing they can do and they can't help. So um, uh, again, these, these are barriers. These are the uh, issues in which uh, these are obstacles to compassionate action, activity. And the, what, the response to these is a kind, it involves a kind of attention and balance. How do we find our balance in the context of um, difficulty with compassion? So uh, those are some of the difficulties. Um, this and you know the Metta Sutra talks about um, may all beings be happy and and a kind of universal sense of compassion, uh, not just. Uh, for one's own family or oneself, but uh, may all beings be happy. So uh, in terms of the practical aspect of that kind of universal compassion, another word to talk about that is objectless compassion. So not uh, having some particular object of our compassion, but just a way of, of, of uh, responsively carrying ourselves. I think Zazen helps this. This sense of uh, in doing sasan over time, the sense of just being present, being aware, um, beyond all of our ideas and judgments and trying to figure things out. Just how do we look at the situation in sasan, the situation of ourselves and the the distress or problems or uh, whatever uh, issues arise in the context of just being ourselves on our cushion. So this universal compassion is uh, this kind of spontaneous, objectless uh, response to the to a situation of suffering. And it's not about something else. It's not about someone else. It's just this um, kind of um, immediacy of giving. A famous story in our tradition, uh, koan, about two Zen teachers, Yunyan and Dawu, 
Yunyan is the Yunyan is the teacher of Dongshan, who founded our Saodong or Soto tradition in China. So this story about this kind of spontaneous, open-hearted compassion uh, is uh, something like this. To paraphrase, uh, they were talking about the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kanon or Kanzeon. The Bodhisattva of compassion is depicted in many different ways, and that's appropriate to compassion because. You know there there are different ways to respond in different situations. So part of of uh, balanced compassion is um, just paying attention, just witnessing. Um, so the the Kanzeon who we, we chant to sometimes the uh, her name means to regard or listen to or hear the sounds of the world, or sometimes it's translated the cries of the world. So to listen to the suffering, to be able to, to, to be willing to hear the suffering. But one of the uh, prominent forms, there are many forms of Kanzeon, but one of the prominent forms uh, has a thousand arms. Sometimes you see it fanned out with many, many arms, and, and each of the hands holds a different many of the hands hold different implements that might be helpful. And each hand has an eye in it, in the palm. So to look at at, uh, the situation from different perspectives, from many perspectives. Um, So the story goes that uh, Dawu asked Yunyan, why does the Bodhisattva of compassion have so many hands and eyes? And some of you know the story, but the union responded, it's like reaching back for a pillow in the middle of the night. So there's something, so it's it's just this kind of reflexive, automatic um, helpfulness or adjustment, or so adjusting our pillow in the middle of the night. Uh, so in the middle of the night, it's not about seeing different categories of things. It's just, you know, this kind of, Automatic response. Now, this is not something to try and cultivate. It's it's a, a kind of awareness and responsiveness that grows in the context of sustained zazen practice. And sometimes when we feel like you know I, we don't have that or whatever, we may make judgments about it. But that's uh, that in terms of, as opposed to all the obstacles to compassion. That's the kind of objectless, spontaneous compassion. It's not about some other. It's about just responsiveness. So um, uh, Joan had a mnemonic that it, it is what she, how she sees um, a, an appropriate way of responding to suffering. And this is from a book of hers called Standing at the Edge. And and it's called, and it's grace G R A C E, so you know this is a kind of way of think, thinking about all this. So G, so G and grace is about gathering attention, just gathering our attention, paying attention to what's what's going on here, what's going on in the situation. Really, uh, compassion requires paying attention, 
and it, it can be a gentle attention, but it's, it's persistent just to uh, look and see what's going on. Um, the second one, R in grace, is to recall our intention. So this is about vow. So at the end of uh, all, our, all our talks, we chant the four bodhisattva vows. But this, um, you know, after gathering our attention, to recall our intention. What is it, you know, what is it we want to do? How is it that we want to be? Um, and of course we forget, but how do we remind ourselves? Um, recall this uh, intention to be helpful, to uh, work together with others, to respond in a way that might, that uh, can help if we can. Uh, the third a in grace is attuning to oneself. Very important. Um, how do we check ourselves? How do we, you know, as Dogen says, turn the light within to study the self. So this is, in a way, uh, a, a big part of zazen. How do we... Um, Attune to ourselves. How do we attune to ourselves and and tune ourselves? So uh, uh, sometimes the bodhisattva is talked about as a kind of uh, channel, like a radio channel that tunes in to Buddha or something. Uh, How do we look at our intention and attune ourselves? That means, again, studying the self, seeing how we are, seeing how does it feel? What's going on? And... Uh, to do this in the context of a regular zazen practice means that we, you know, in the process, in the middle of trying to be helpful, or not even trying to be helpful, just responding. Uh, what's going on? To seeing seeing ourself as part of the process and being helpful. So that's G R A C is um, considering. Considering what is helpful, what serves to address the suffering. And this is in the context of not knowing. It's not about figuring out. It's not, it's not calculating. It's considering, oh, what's going on here? And without having some answer, without grasp, grabbing on to some answer about what to do in a particular situation, how do we consider what, what, you know, what might be helpful, what might be useful? And then the last one, E of grace, is uh, engaging. When we've done these other other four, to actually um, interact, to try and be helpful, to um, uh, interact clearly uh, from that perspective. So um, this is um, a kind of you know roadmap or a scheme for looking at what are the textures of compassion. Again, all the obstacles to compassion, uh, uh, the ways in which we can get caught in um, duality and in, in not taking care of ourselves in the, in the process of just of not caring or of making judgments, uh, of not respecting all the others involved in the situation. 
And then as opposed to that, just developing what uh, without, it's not about calculating. It's, this is kind of subtle. How does, how do we find our way of just responding um, kind of spontaneously, uh, helpfully? There's a kind of training involved in that, which is that we, uh, in the practice of skillful means, which is one of the comp- practices of the Bodhisattva of compassion, we try and act uh, to help in, in, in a situation. And what, and, but there's no, there's no um, mat- instruction manual for that. It's a matter of paying attention, paying attention to ourselves as well as any others involved. And how do we just respond open-heartedly? So I could keep battling, but maybe that's enough to start. And I'm interested in, you know, any thoughts any of you have, um, we can just talk informally. This is a, you know, nice little small group here. Uh, any thoughts, comments, responses about these textures of compassion? Please feel free. Amina. Um, I like the mnemonic. I like the C, especially considering, um, just because it seems like if you're always considering, then you're staying open, you know, so that you're staying open, you're maybe less likely to go towards self-righteousness or towards um, a certain thing that you think someone, you know, something you should be doing that's someone or something else needs, you know you know, that it's this one thing or, you know, like, but just the, yeah, I, I like the openness of consider that's stuck with me, especially. Thank you. Yeah. So it's not calculating. <laughs> it's not figuring it out. It's, it's, this is, it's, um, it's not exactly contemplating either. Just consider what's, what might be helpful here and without knowing without, you know, it's very open, as you say. Yeah. It's a, it's a, one of these, parts of this process of compassion that is really simple in a way, but um, maybe we should consider considering. (laughs) Anyway, thank you. Other reflections or responses, please feel free. Yes, you, um, that, uh, that talk to get home, Tygen, because I'm, um, I'm one of these guys in the helping professions, and uh, we get hit with that all the time. Uh, so passionate, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're trying our best, like everybody else. Um, but um, uh, you know, it's, it's um, I don't mean this in a self-pitying sense, but it, I mean it's kind of kind of rough to bring all that to, to a, a uh, you know uh, to one's work uh, with um, a uh, with with people very different kinds of, of disabilities and they're all um, they're all uh, together in the same you know uh, space usually a small space um, I had a, a, a case this morning it's kind of a continuing problem if you want to think of it like that uh, I, have, I have a client very he's a nice guy but he's just contrary just loves the word no uh, I, I work the morning shift and one of my jobs is to get people their day programming and uh, these days, our, our agency, like uh, many others, are, are, have a, a staffing shortage. And so rather than keeping them at home or keeping them 
uh, you know, otherwise employed, what we do is we, we, we put them in the gym. We do mandatory recreation for a couple of three hours until we can, you know, find a place to, um, to, to re, you know, relocate them or reassign them or send them to their jobs. Um, and um, this guy is supposed to be out of the house at 8.30, and it's always like 9.30, 9.45 when he has breakfast and, you know, comes out of his room and takes a shower. And, um, you know, I, I finally get him to... Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've been relating to him as like a drill sergeant because that's what everybody else does, right? And um, today I had uh, I, I had a chance to, um, or the opportunity or the, the reason to go to go to the gym and just look around. That's I guess what you're gathering intent. Uh, yeah. What you. And um, and and I looked around and they were they were, they were sitting in a circle. They all looked really really bored, and they were playing the same board, but it was like a combination of shuffleboard and field hockey. They had these. Eat these sticks, and I'm thinking, uh, no, I wouldn't want to get up early first thing in the morning and, and rush to play some lame game either. So I kind of understand, you know, but you know, there's no, uh, the reality, there's not enough imagination or or or, or resources or whatever the deal is to uh, to uh, assign them properly. But uh, I was I was able to I was able to see that, and 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 your. Uh, your talk helped me illumine the, uh, 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 the the struggles that I'm having, and a lot of us are having, and you know, it's something to uh, uh, think about, and it's something to meditate upon, and uh, probably something I'll need to act on in, in some manner. So I, I thank you for that. Thank you for your um, for for telling us about this situation. Um, you know, skillful means. Um, how to act, how to actually be helpful, how to actually serve, you know, and that in Jones thing, that's, uh, um, well, that's the one that uh, Amina was talking about, considering what actually helps, what is, what is service. Uh, but part of what's involved in that in terms of, you know, there, there's all these, there, there are lots of different ways to talk about compassion, lots of different ways to talk about practice. But one of them is the transcendent practices, the paramitas. And, and in terms of skillful, skillful means is one of them, but that it depends very much on the practice of patience, which I talk about a lot. Uh, and and um, patience is again a tricky because you can you can feel you can go into this uh, you know this kind of uncaringness and just you know just hanging out and waiting and you know not paying attention. But true patience as a practice is very dynamic and active, and really. What you you know attention as you were saying really watching the people in the, in the you know in the in the room and what's going on and 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 also the discipline not to just act you know not to just react you know sometimes we have some impulse to we I got to do something you know but sometimes uh, patience means just sitting there just just being there witnessing watching really paying attention. And in the middle of that, sometimes we see something that might be actually helping and really serving. But that's difficult. It's, it's, you know, when we see some distress, when we see some problem, you know, what, there's one impulse to want to rush in and help to fix things. 
And that often creates more problems. That's where we think we're better than the person we're helping. So um, it's challenging. It's a, it's a re- this, is, this is getting into the nitty gritty of what bodhisattva work is. So anyway, thank you for that, Joe. Um, good luck with it. It's, it's, you know, there's, it's not, there's not an easy answer. Other comments or reflections or responses? This texture of compassion. I am, I was uh, sort of struck by how many steps you have to do before you connect and engage, right? There's a lot of internal work that has to happen on your end first to be, I don't want to say effective, but to engage, Um, which makes sense because otherwise um, you'll miss something Mm -hmm. we've talked about. And that, you know, not just um, the other person, but or situation, um, but you might miss something like where your approach is or or how you're um, engaging. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. The vast majority of the work seems to be (laughs) yourself first. Yeah, that's the attuning part to to see. It's not not only yourself. It's like really considering this situation in a very open, open way. You know, it's as you say. It's there's a to be ready to act. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. To be ready to act is uh, can be a slow process. Sometimes, you know, this this you know this goes on. You can do this you know, over and over again in each situation with each person in the room, uh, as Joe was describing. But um, sometimes it can happen very quickly or going through all those steps. You know, the more we, the more you do that, the more you can, you know, gather your attention, check your intention, um, tune yourself to what's going on in here for yourself. Consider what might be helpful. And then engage. That can be a slope. It's not. It's not one. It's not on one time frame. Sometimes it's very slow. Sometimes it just sort of comes up, like reaching back for your pillow in the middle of the night. Um, anyway, it's 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 interesting. There's um, again, there's no instruction manuals, even though Joan is laying out a process. But yeah, yeah. So thank you. Um, Other comments or responses? Yes, Ed, hi. Uh, Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Tygen, for your Monday evening rainy talk. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly we're getting a lot of water in the world. But... um, to partially what Patrick is saying, I mean, I, you know, I have a tradition. I have a 
uh, ethical tradition that I grew up with or grew up in, which I, which was not visible to me and remains largely concealed still, which was to work through mm. to an understanding or to um, approach and become familiar with an object separate from myself that is not part of me because I was born incomplete in some way, mm. which is also part of a large, a lot of spiritual traditions. And I think that to some degree here, I feel as if possibly I'm participating in a tradition that attempts to leapfrog over that narrative and to um, consider the possibility of, of, dropping adopted narratives in how I relate to both myself, the world, and others. And I have found that I am my most um, empathic or the most connecting with other people when I'm not operating within a narrative. And in that sense, it is a spontaneous emotional experience when it happens. So exiting narrative is actually sometimes can be very easy. And you say it's a Zazen related potential practice too. And yes, that makes sense to me. So thank you. Yeah, that, I think that's very, that's very interesting. Um, narrative, gosh. Um, yes, we can drop our narratives. We can drop our stories about who we are, that we're not helpful or that, or that we're helping everybody or, you know, um, we do have all these stories and actually the Zen tradition is the tradition of teaching stories, right? All these stories of the old ancestors, the koans um, to show us something about our own practice. So uh, what I, I, what you're saying is really interesting. We can drop our stories. Some, some stories are get in the way. We have, we have all these stories. We tell ourselves about ourselves Um or how I can't do it, or how, you know, or, and sometimes it's, sometimes it's helpful to actually look at the limitations and acknowledge them and accept them. Um, so there are stories that trap us, maybe, you know, I, it's an interesting thing, an interesting question. There are stories that maybe confine us, limit us, and there are other stories that maybe liberate us, or like, allow us to let go of something. So, yeah, how this works with narratives is, is an interesting question. And I don't think there's one way to do it. Just like there's no one ins- instruction manual. But, yeah, uh, thank you, Ed. I really, I, I'm going to, I'm going to consider that more. So, thank you. Other reflections or comments? Yes, Wade. Well, just to respond to that, um and I thought that was a really interesting point. It seems it seems to me like stories are um, the finger that points at the moon, mm-hmm. which is to say it's really helpful if you don't know where the moon is because it's showing showing where the moon is. Um, but but if you get too fixated on the finger, then then you're not looking at the moon, right? It's not the thing itself, but it can they they can be helpful, but also distracting, maybe is a word, um, you know, a form of delusion. If we, if we forget that they're pointing us towards the thing itself and are not in fact the thing themselves. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, stories are interesting. You know, there's there's a lot to that. Um, I think we think in terms of stories. I mean, our sentence structure, subject, verb, object, that's already a story. You know, we're already going out as subjects and verbing objects. You know, there's a whole narrative there in a way. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, this may be too simplistic. I'm tempted to think of what's a helpful story and what's a distracting, as you said, Wayne, story or an obstructive story. But then sometimes a story that was a distracting or obstructive at one point suddenly becomes helpful. You know, that's the, that's one of the values of these old teaching stories, you know, that we can uh, get caught up in, uh, you know, studying, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature in all kinds of ways. And, and at some point it might be just this, this obstacle like Mu and sometimes it just opens up. So, um, but I think we can't, we can drop some stories and actually part of, part of Zazen is getting to know our own stories. You know, Dogen says to study the ways to study the self. When we really become intimate and familiar with our own stories about how things is, um, we cannot be caught by them. Uh, uh, yes, Ed? And I, because it is a small group, I would like to uh, rejoin that too a little bit. Um, it's just because I'm, I'm reading this guy who's out of his mind, he's mad, and he talks about poetic agency, which can only spring internally, independent of story. And it takes, if there's a practice involved, it's a practice simply of listening. Mm. And that the narrative in all cases is almost always imposed externally and therefore separate. And it can serve as, as maybe Wade was implying as a barrier, not, not exclusively, on, on the path to agency, of course, narratives are very, very, very helpful. But actual agency itself is often independent of story, maybe. And the exercise of compassion is an exercise of recognition of the self and other with others. And when I say other, I mean the self, right? <laughs> yes. When I'm standing at the Burger King counter and the woman behind the woman behind the counter is frustrated because the register, she can't find the right button on the register. And I really don't want a whopper in the first place. And then, you know, my sense of being with her is helpful. I find sometimes I see enormous human power in those moments. Yes. Which is always, always, always miraculous. Yeah. I, I, the, um, Agency is another interesting thing. Uh, so, um, uh, Alex next, but I also want to then call on Amina, who because she's uh, Amina's a, a wonderful writer and a, and a teller of stories, so uh, she may have something to say about this. But Alex, first, go ahead. Um, well, I'm just thinking of, of uh, uh, a Dharma talk from a couple weeks back about writing as is deconstructing self. And, you know, I think that the narratives that are most harmful for me when I'm trying to engage in helping and, you know, I, I, um, uh, I'm, I teach English to, to, to immigrant students. And that is, uh, narratives that are sort of heroic self narratives, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where, 
um, I, um, you know, uh, put myself in the, in the center of whatever suffering that, um, the, the person is experiencing and, um, you know, uh, offer help and grow frustrated when they don't avail themselves of it or don't follow through and in a certain way. Um, and it's also, um, just sort of this problem solving maybe before the, um, the, with, without enough attunement, um, uh, to use your, uh, one of the letters from your acronym, uh, your acronym tag in, um, um, that, yeah, that's very harmful in my relationship with my partner too, particularly when often I think, um, uh, People want you to be present with their suffering more than um, um, than insert yourself as a heroic solution. So that, um, uh, thanks, Ed, for the thought. Yeah, and part of the root of the idea of the bodhisattva is kind of the heroic warrior, the person who's um, working for working to awaken all beings. But that can be kind of inflation and you know that was the first the first pa- aspect of pathological compassion that that Roshi John talked about is disempowering some other because we know we have the we have the goods we know the answers so yeah it, there's the terrain of all this is complex and we go over it and and you know I mean I think we all know all this stuff but to really uh kind of get into it and be present with it anyway. Uh, so Amina, I, I said I was going to call on you. I, you. Amina writes wonderful stories and novels and short stories. And what, what do you think about narrative in term in relationship to compassion? Um, well, something that I just started thinking about, um, I wrote something recently in which I was um, wondering about why I've never been someone who can really stick to a diary like who hasn't, you know, like I'm, I, I'm a writer who doesn't really keep a diary. And um, this, what came to me was that um, I write to see what's inside my mind and that um, that to me feels far healthier than recording what I know is already there. And so I think, um, I mean, I guess that just kind of goes back to this idea of, of openness or or maybe like a little bit of like, bringing the subconscious into the equation um, where uh, narrative comes from, where narrative can come from, come from openness and not, you know, like I, I write fiction, but I should say that I'm not very much of a plot driven fiction writer. And so, um, and I, I do read things with plot in them and I can enjoy them, but it's not, it's not kind of what drives me when I'm writing and um so in terms of narrative and compassion, I mean, I think I have a negative association in some ways with the word narrative, not when it comes to writing fiction, but in terms of one's life, you know, because you think about like the narratives that you're always revisiting again and again about yourself or maybe even mm-hmm. about someone else. And I've heard myself spin the same narrative over and over again to different people that sometimes it's like a kind of complaint you know, in my, you know, or some, or some, 
So I think I, I think narrative. Yeah. I have some, some negative association with it. You know, when I'm writing fiction, I see it as a place of possibility um, that doesn't have to be nailed down to like a certain kind of plot to that, like freight tag triangle, you know, where it's like rising action, you know, like, um, I just, I think I kind of rambled and said a lot of different things, but that's, that's what's there for me thinking about it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, the part about, uh, narrative as being a mode of exploration, you know, not knowing where the narrative is or where it's going is, is, you know, anyway, one of the part of what you were saying. So, um, yeah, interesting. Uh, other comments, responses? We have a little bit more time. If anyone has any reflections? Yes, Wade. Well, I, um, I had an incident recently, a few weeks ago, with a friend of mine who I'm getting to know, um, where he was, he was responding very poorly to something that I said and, and responding in a very passive, what I felt was a very passive-aggressive sort of tone, which is something I do not respond to very well. <laughs> no one does, but I think perhaps me especially. Um, and so I think it's easy in those instances um, to come up with all the things that you think are wrong with that person, right? To make a narrative about, about that person and like all the horrible things that you know, oh, well, if they think this, they might think X, Y, and Z other thing, you know, which is not based in an observation of reality. Uh, and I did that in my head. And then I realized I was doing that in my head. And so I stopped. And then I tried to use narrative, I guess, to do the opposite of that, to say, okay, what is he, what is he actually feeling? Like, why is he responding this way to what I said? Um, he's, he's clearly not responding this way because he's happy. He's, he's suffering, right. To cause him to, to be this nasty. Uh, how can I be, how can I be compassionate to that? Um, and so I, I decided to use, I, I tried at least to use that, that approach. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a narrative both of those are just narratives in my head about someone else, right? One is helpful. One is not so helpful. Uh, so anyway, I, I took my, I took a long time composing a response and the response ended up not going over well either. Um, but sometimes that's the way it goes. Uh, I guess that's the hard part of compassion or upaya generally is knowing well, what is the appropriate response? I know I'm supposed to come up with one. And I know, <laughs> I know I'm supposed to, you know, reflect you on what I'm feeling, to. reflect on the <laughs> other person, pay attention, do all of these things. Uh, but then when the rubber hits the road, sometimes it's like, oh, what I what I wrote him, I thought was an appropriate response and, and it ended up not working. So yeah. Sometimes doing nothing is the best response. I don't know. It's there's no easy answers. Uh, thinking, thinking what, what you were just talking about, waiting, thinking about what Amina said uh, in, in your stories, Amina. Yes, it's not plot driven. It's about. It's often about character. To to put it that way, 
they're interesting people and one sees the inner dynamics and gets to know them in a different context in, in the works of yours that I've read. So that's a different mode of like looking at, and that's kind of what you were talking about, Wade, like looking at this person and why are they doing that and how can I help? And maybe there's nothing to do, but, but you, but, but trying something, you know, you thought it would help. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe that, uh, you know, maybe later you'll, that, that will be helpful in some other context. I don't know. I, a, I, did, a, I did my level best, um, but <laughs> perhaps perhaps it was the best thing to do and all of the other options were worse. You can't, you can't always win. Sometimes you can just lose less. Yeah, and not knowing is important too. Yes, yes, yes. And, and no narrative act is ever complete. But I, I was just thinking, Wade, like when you said that people are such mysteries, right? Because you've got one narrative in which that you might feel is like a negative narrative. You've got another that might be more compassionate. But then I, I just felt like, why not just ask the person what's going on? You know, like, I don't know how that fits into all of this. But I think about, for instance, like um, maybe like falling outs I've had with people and, you know, like me and another friend like an, you know, a mutual friend, we might like sort of ponder for like hours what's going on with this other person or what they were thinking or why they did this. And I'm always just kind of like, can't we just like talk to the person directly and find out, you know, like what they were feeling, but I guess human relationships aren't that easy. It's not that easy always just to like cut to the chase and like ask, like, how were you feeling in that moment? You know, I don't know. Yeah. I think that can be a difficult thing to ask. And I, I also think that people don't always respond super well to that. I mean, that ended up being approximately my approach to this, um, to say, like, I understand that you're feeling these things, but here's what I'm feeling. Uh, and hopefully we can come to some sort of, you know, middle ground or at least a mutual understanding. And uh, because I think you're right. I think people generally and myself very much included just, yeah, come up with these stories, either positive or negative. And don't corroborate them with the person that, that they're about. Um, and I, I do wish it were simpler. Yeah. But sometimes it's just tricky. Yes, Patrick. I, um, <clears throat> I really appreciate this uh, discussion. I'm writing down a lot of uh, words to reconsider in new contexts, but um, w- one of the, and uh, one of the things that um, <clears throat> I think I, I don't know if I heard it here, or I think it was in the context of like um, maybe chaplaincy or hospice. And I know there's lots of um, folks involved with that here, but um, like the approach, approaching like compassion is like being a bowl like the useful part of the bowl is empty. Um, And so if we're, if I'm coming into a situation with a bunch of narratives or assumptions, my bowl is already full. And then when I engage with someone else, what they're saying or, or what they're providing in the context of our engagement has nowhere to go. Um, and so that early on the 
with the acronym for grace, all that stuff, I was equating it to like emptying my bowl before engaging with someone. Um, and I'm not, I'm not good at that. My bowl is probably 90% full most of the time, if not more full, <laughs> depending on the time of day, it might be even overflowing. Um, but I, I like this. I, I like, I, um, it's just something I'm sort of like playing with this idea of like bringing narratives in and while well, yes, there's good examples I might be able to provide in a situation if someone's grieving the loss of someone or something. Um, my experience, even though it might be similar, isn't the same. Um, and so that idea of like, well, let me fill my bowl with, with what you're providing and, we work through that rather than trying to bring myself into the conversation. Yes, Alex. Um, yeah, the, I like the image of the bull, Patrick, and um, it kind of reminds me of a sentiment that uh, Tagan said earlier, this idea of um, compassion kind of coming from intimacy and that when someone is having uh, difficulty or is angry, you know, I just think of the Diamond Sutra that says, you know, a, bod a bodhisattva um, does not um, if, if if a bodhisattva thinks that he or she delivers living beings, um, uh, they cannot be called a true bodhisattva. And um, that, um, um, yeah, the, I guess maybe it's been called sort of bearing witness or just being with with uh, someone, and 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 from that, like. Maybe that 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 true seeing that helps us engage comes. This has been a great discussion. I mean, just thank you, everyone. I just uh, real just looking at the textures of this. Uh, uh, Joan Halifax ended her talk by with a really interesting image. She talked about wounded Buddhas. So we're all kind of expressing that in some way, wounded Buddha. Uh, she talked about it in connection with, you know, the past couple of years. So, well, maybe we could say the past several hundred years, but whatever, you know, the, the, the pandemic and, you know, 700,000 people lost. I mean, what is it in this country, just in this country? How, what does that mean even? Um, but, you know, the, that we're all kind of wounded Buddhas, sitting in a charnel ground, uh, considering, well, literally death, but just considering, you know, all the problems that everybody's brought up here. How do we respond to someone who's, who we, who we think is being passive aggressive? How do we um, let go of all of our stories that are getting in the way? Or how do we find helpful stories? Or anyway, um, so there's something about that that really, to me, um, hits some aspect of compassion. 
to not be the Buddha who can who knows all the answers, but just we're all wounded Buddhas. How and then how do we respond from that? From that. So uh, we could just close with the four bodhisattva vows, but if somebody else, if somebody has something else you want to say, um, we can add. I apologize because I talk too much, but it's because I'm isolated. <laughs> Wounded Buddha. <laughs> but, you know, I'm reading this ridiculous, I'm, well, it's a fantastic essay called An Apology for Poetry. And apparently passion, the word passion in the Greek, in the English refers to the, it. You go back to the Greek and it means suffering. Mm. And of course, compassion is with suffering. And so it's a recognition of the state of suffering and the state of suffering is so permeates all human emotion, including love and glory and joy, because it's always in the face of, of fear in some level. And so certainly when you mention the woundedness of the experience of compassion, that seems very central to it in, 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 in human consciousness through the centuries, certainly. That's the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. But it's a noble truth because we can face it. We can sit with it. We can be willing to hang out here in the middle of not knowing what to do with all the, all the challenges. You know, That's our practice. So I don't know that, that any of this was helpful to anybody, but I hope so. And, you know, it just gives us more grist for the mill, you know. How do we, how do we live our lives? How do we respond? It's, uh, uh, it's challenging, but it's, uh, it's nice to be able to kind of consider this together. This has been a great discussion. Thank you, each one of you. <laughs>